Well, good morning and welcome to the first in our series, The Life and Teachings of Jesus. Now, this series is largely about discipleship. Uh, what did Jesus mean when he referred to people as his disciple? What does it mean for us to be a disciple of Jesus? And how did Jesus make disciples? And we're going to start the series by uh, using Jesus' wonderful parable about the vine, where he talks about himself as being the main vine and his disciples being the branches. And he talks a lot about fruit bearing. And uh, we've got some pretty good looking fruit here, actually. Very nice. That's a good grape. Try another one, I think. Excellent. Why don't you guys share some grapes amongst you? Pass that bowl around while, um, while I share the main passage today. The topic is the essence of discipleship. The essence of discipleship. John 15 and 8 verses. Let me share that with you. I'm the true vine, Jesus speaking. I'm the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and with us. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish. It will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Uh, one of the things that uh, you'll hear me emphasize from time to time in the journey of discipleship or getting God's word into our hearts is the combination of doing several things when we're in a teaching series. So certainly listen to the preached word of God. And it's great if you can be here in person to listen. Of course, you can catch up online if you've missed a message, but it's great to be together in God's house hearing the word of God live. Um, the other thing that uh, I often emphasize, and it's certainly the case with this series, is sometimes I'll write a book to go with the series, a study book. And so in this case, this study book directly relates to the messages. And so in your personal quiet times, you get alone with God and meditate further on his word. There's thought-provoking questions in the book to get you thinking about some of those scriptures that we've looked into. And there's a third step as well, that you can also not only listen to the preached word, meditate on the passages with the study book, but you can also join one of the small group Bible studies where they're going to be discussing the book. You're listening to the preached word, you're meditating on the passages, you're discussing it further in a small group environment. And finally, what I'd uh, encourage people to do is apply it. Live out those things you're learning. So whether you're applying it in a ministry team or just in your day-to-day -day life in the work environment or in the home or wherever, but the idea is, of course, we don't want to just increase our knowledge. Jesus, when he taught the Word of God, he was always about living the, out the things that we're learning. In fact, he challenged the Pharisees that that was one of their problems. They knew the Word of God, but they didn't live the Word of God. Today, I thought to, to um, typify what it really means or to set an example of what it means to live out the essence of discipleship, I thought I'd, I'd give an example. I mean, there's many great leaders that I could have given an example of, but today I thought I'd tell the story of Zachariah Botros. Uh, Zachariah Botros is a Coptic priest um, and uh, as you can see he looks very uh, very um, godly 
Uh, Zachariah um, got a call it was about, it was about a decade ago, and I know a member of his, of his family actually who, who uh, confirmed this. He got a call from the FBI and they told him an update. They wanted to let him know what the bounty was now on his head. Muslim groups had set a bounty on his head which had now risen to $60 million US. $60 million. In fact, you could get $1 million if you just gave his accurate address. Now, why on earth are the Muslims so keen to take this guy down? Well, it's, uh, according to their figures, it's because he has led over 6 million Muslims to faith in Jesus Christ through his closed satellite television broadcast. Uh, so that's Muslims that have, that have watched this broadcast and they've come to the conclusion Jesus is not just a prophet. Like the Christians say, he really is the Son of God, the divine Son of God, and through faith in him, we can come into this relationship with the one true God, and millions of them have discovered that relationship. Um, perhaps I'll, I'll tell you a, a little bit about Zachariah, but I, I know as I share that story, immediately some of you are thinking, oh, could that be true? Six, six million on someone's head? I mean, are, you know, are you exaggerating? Well, friends, um, the world in which we live, Christian leaders are taken out. They're killed quite regularly. And just a little earlier, when uh, Jason was leading our worship, for instance, uh, Jason Shavaj, his uncle, who was a minister of the gospel in Pakistan, he was shot dead because he was preaching the gospel about a month ago by Muslims. So don't kind of think this is exaggerated stuff. This is happening all the time. But let me tell you a little bit about Zachariah. Uh, as a young man, he was a morally upright young man and thought it might be a good profession to become a Coptic priest. Uh, now, he, he went through his training and he was ordained and ministering in a church. Um, but at this time, he is, he is a little like Nicodemus. We're going to hear a bit about Nicodemus in this series. Nicodemus was a religious leader that Jesus sat down with, talked at length with. And he told Nicodemus, even though he was Israel's teacher, he said, Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And he challenges Nicodemus that although great knowledge of the word... Um, received as Israel's teacher, but did not know God in that personal born-again way. Well, that was the case for Zechariah as well. He didn't know the Lord in that personal born-again way until 1964. In 1964, when the world is suddenly getting into the Beatles, uh, Zechariah was getting into Jesus and had this deep, radical encounter with Jesus Christ where he was born again by the Spirit of God. His ministry absolutely exploded after this. Um, one of my favorite Bible commentators is the late John Stott. And John Stott in the 60s went over to look at the ministry that Zachariah was leading. And he was deeply impressed with the level of discipleship that was taking place in Zachariah's church and the ministry in general. Well, Zachariah uh, was, uh, ended up being posted in another church. And this was a Coptic church in Cairo, his second church position. And um, this one was a small church. Uh, it was down to about 15 members, one five, 15 members. A beautiful facilities, but um, a small congregation. Well, Zachariah started serving there and God was moving in great power. Um, the preached word of God was attracting a lot of Coptics coming back to church. They drifted, weren't really doing much church. They, were, they started to come back in great numbers. And also, God started to release his miracle working power. People with terminal illnesses had come forward for prayer and many of them 
as Zachariah prayed in Jesus' name, were instantaneously healed. Well, word, the word spread. And Muslims who had gone to, for instance, their imam, received some prayer because there was sickness in the family or terminal illness in the family. Nothing happened. And so they started to think, well, perhaps we could go to that Christian church where Zachariah Botros is the minister. And they did. And many Muslims saw family members instantaneously healed where the word spread. And Muslims started to come to the church in their thousands. Wonderful work of God. So um, the church, literally, it grew from somewhere around the 15 mark to 5,000 people over a few years. And it was because of what? It was because of this extraordinary power that was operating in the church where people were being healed. Muslims were seeing the miracles of God and because of those miracles, they thought Jesus must be the Messiah. He must, be the, he must truly be the Son of God. He cannot just be a prophet because in Jesus' name, these miracles are happening. Muslims would even, you've got to realize too, Muslims believe in demons. And sometimes Muslims would bring a member of the family that would say, Look, I'm, I'm concerned that my, my son or my daughter or my uncle is, is possessed by a demonic spirit. Can you do anything? And again, um, Pastor Botros would command in the name of Jesus that demonic power leave, and so often it did. And the consequence was radical. That person who had some major emotional illness suddenly that all left and they were healed set free from that demonic power now of course um to grow a big ministry a church of five thousand you need a really good team and one of the things that uh, Zachariah was strong on was the way he made really strong key leading disciples in his church and so he decided to take uh 20 guys under his wing and thoroughly disciple them but he did not choose to say send them off to Coptic seminary he went there himself and he, he knew the the training was very academic rather he wanted to do it more like Jesus would make a disciple where he saw Jesus using an apprenticeship model where Jesus would he'd 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 preach the word of God or he'd, he'd talk about the the fact that people needed to come to faith in him as the son of God or he'd um, heal the sick and he his disciples watched what he did and the way he connected with people and then Having watched Jesus, he sent them to do the same thing and he would be there and he would talk about how they, how they did. And then finally, he'd send them out by themselves and they'd report back to him. And that sort of model was exactly what Zachariah did. Raised up 20 very, very key ministers and that enabled him to grow that church to such a phenomenal size, some 5,000 strong. Well, there was a change in government, unfortunately, and uh, it meant that... Uh, persecution started to take place savage persecution against the coptic church leaders of egypt and um, many of them were imprisoned zachariah got a, a knock at the door late one night he was actually asleep one of his sons answered the door and uh, as the door was open um, the re religious police for want of a better term came collected him and he was taken away to prison and uh, the prison conditions are not like our you know, pretty easy-going prison conditions in Australia. Uh, I mean, these were horrendous conditions. So Zachariah was put in a tiny cell with two other priests, and this cell it, dimensions are not much bigger than your dining room table. It's, it, the height's taller, but as far as its width and its length, not much bigger than a dining room table. When these guys were trying to sleep at night, if one of them needed to roll over or something, they all had to stand up and reshuffle. That's how tightly packed they were little thin mattresses they were sleeping on. But the conditions were terrible besides that. Uh, the food, for instance, um, the guard 
would put a bucket of food outside their door, leave it there for about two hours, giving time for the cockroaches to get into it, and then serve it out on plastic plates, shove those plates under the door. By then it was infested with cockroaches. Mostly they just turfed it straight down the toilet, which was really not much more than an open sewer. Uh, they, they lived off the bread. That was about the only thing they could tolerate. Um, the, the open sewer type of toilet too, of course, attracted mosquitoes in huge numbers. In fact, uh, the walls of their cell turned red because they'd killed so many mosquitoes that red with their own blood, of course. Um, the, the other reality was there's no air conditioning in that cell and they had to go through an Egyptian summer. I mean, we are talking temperatures of up to 45 degrees, no air conditioning, just a, a little gap under the, under the door. Terrible conditions. But despite all of what I've described, the worst thing for Zachariah was not any of those conditions. It was the fact that he had no news of his children or his wife. He didn't know if they were being persecuted, if they were imprisoned or if they were even killed. No news. Complete blanket of any communication. Well, eventually there was a, a further change in government and things became a little more lenient. And so after several months in those conditions, Zachariah was let out of that prison and went to a more uh, reasonable prison and eventually was allowed some visitation from his family and ultimately, after over a year, was released from prison. Um, he didn't stay in Egypt too much longer after this, but moved to Australia and then ultimately to the USA. And for many, many years now, he's ran a closed satellite television broadcast, which um, reaches millions of people all over the world. And as you heard me say, has seen literally millions of people come to faith in Jesus Christ as well. Um, when I share that story too, although I've read the biography and Stuart Robinson, who some of you know, has written a great biography about his life. Uh, but can I add, it's not just based on a biography that I've read. Uh, I know his son personally. And um, Peter would actually say of his dad that there's a reason why um, he could live the life he lived. Because I tell you what, I, I don't know how I'd cope with those sort of conditions, being in prison like that. You know, would I become really angry with God and resentful? I, I don't know. I probably would, you know. Uh, but Zachariah, despite the fact he had those horrible prison conditions, the, 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 knowing nothing of his family, he's got a $60 million bounty on his head. Despite all of that, Peter said that he has such joy and he's so at peace. He, he, he's not fearful at all. And, and I thought, how do you have that incredible joy despite some of the stuff he's gone through and the continuing bounty on his head? Well, it's because of this. Zachariah Botros typifies the essence of discipleship. He has learned to draw from the vine like a branch. And um, he, he has doing all of this in the strength that only Jesus can provide. Well, today we're going to unpack this passage and I hope we can learn a little of what Zachariah has learned. Let me look at the first verse. It says here, 15.1, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. And why does Jesus say, I'm the true vine? What, what contrast is he making there? Well, in uh, Isaiah chapter 5, in the first seven or so verses, Isaiah talks about Israel, led of the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He says that Israel has been, uh, th th as a vineyard, God hasn't been happy with them. They haven't been fruit-bearing. They haven't been the fruitful vine that the God the Father has wanted. But he speaks of his son, of course, as being the, the perfect uh, fruitful vine. And Jesus here himself declares that he is the true vine. And who's the gardener? His Father, God the Father in heaven. The passage goes on to say, verse 2, He cuts off 
every branch in me that bears no fruit. So here the illustration that Jesus is giving, he's saying that God the Father, his Father, cuts off every branch in him that bears no fruit. Now we've got some very fruitful looking branches here, but uh, what about this one though? There are plenty of nice leaves on this, but I tell you what, there's no fruit. So according to Jesus' illustration, God the Father takes that branch and cuts it off. And here's another one. Look at this one. No fruit on that. The illustration, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. And the illustration goes on. You know, William Barclay actually says something very interesting about this. Uh, apparently, the, uh, he, he's a great uh, Bible commentator, uh, uh, especially digging into the culture of the New Testament and the times. And he says that apparently the vine dressers of that time in Israel, they knew that the, the, the sort of grapevines they used always would produce some branches that didn't bear fruit. But those branches, the vine dresser always knew to cut them right back, cut them off, because if they didn't, the branches that were fruit-bearing bore less fruit. Um, interesting reality. goes on to say in verse 6, If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. And so Jesus' illustration goes on here where he says, those branches that are cut off, well, the, the, the wood of the grapevine is, is too soft to make anything out. They, they're just useless. And so those branches that are cut off, well, they're just thrown away, discarded, burned, as it puts it. Goes on to say in uh, verse 2, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it so that it will be even more fruitful. Uh, so the, the pruning goes on. So it's not just... Uh, the secateurs aren't just taken out for the fruitless branches, but that says that there are some fruitful branches too, like, uh, well, here we go. This one, this certainly got some fruit on it, this branch here. But according to the illustration, he's saying that some of those fruitful branches, though, they, they need some pruning, you know? Why? Well, they're going to become even more fruitful as they're pruned. Now, I'll tell you what, pruning sounds like a painful process. I don't know if anyone wants to just hold out a finger and uh, I could just give you a little pruning no that sounds pretty scary um, the fact is that concept is one where I think it ties in with what Jesus says actually not not far from this passage he says in this world you will have trouble or another version says in this world you will have suffering but, uh, he adds but take courage I've overcome the world but Jesus never denies the fact we're going to have some real challenges in this world he never hides that and so sometimes um, with a, a more prosperity type of gospel uh, that is sometimes preached, the idea is that you know, it's you become a Christian and it's, it's always going to be really crazy. It's going to be really good, but of course that's actually really not the case. Jesus never taught that. He said there's going to be real challenges in life. Now pruning could well be some of those challenges in life is one of God's ways of, of allowing those circumstances to prune you, and and that could be all sorts of things. It, it could be poor health. It could be lost dreams. It could be difficult relationships. It could be painful circumstances. Um, but of course, for, for you and I, we've got to allow those things to prune us 
and make us better and more fruitful because painful circumstances sometimes don't make Christians better, they make them bitter. And we've got to really watch our heart in the journey of all that. 15.3 says this, You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself, it must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. And so Jesus' word here is really saying that just as these uh, fruitful branches, all sorts of grapes here gathered on these branches, producing a lot of fruit, but they're only going to produce fruit if they're drawing from the main vine. They've got to be drawing from the main vine. Otherwise, they can't, obviously it's logical, they can't produce fruit. They've got to draw from that sap. And like you and I, if we're to be fruitful Christians, we've got to learn how to draw from what the nutrients that Jesus provides. And that doesn't happen naturally. It happens because we've put some spiritual disciplines in our life. And it's the age-old spiritual disciplines of saying, hey, I'm going I'm to devote myself to being in the Word of God. As I, as I read, as I meditate upon, as I listen to the, the Word of God, it will actually provide nutrients for my soul, for my spirit. I will grow because of it. Um, it's, it's the age-old reality of prayer whether it's prayer with people or a prayer by yourself alone with God we need to be people of prayer of course it includes things like worship such as gathering together and singing the Lord's praises it's so important in our spiritual growth and our relationship with Jesus and of course you can do that alone as well you, you might be a, a singer or a musician where you can just get alone with God and sing his praises um, or it might be that you you know you put on a cd and quietly listen to the Lord's praise songs you know it could be in your car but it could be a quiet place that you've created you know uh, a little spot where you can get alone with God but the idea of his word and prayer and worship are going to be essential to helping your heart grow and develop and learn how to draw from his strength and of course being obedient to the word of God too living it out 15.5 says this I'm the vine you are the branches if you remain in me and I in you you will bear much fruit he says you're going to be fruit bearing if you learn how to draw from the resource i want to give you but he adds but apart from me you can do nothing apart from me you can do nothing jesus um uses another analogy really to teach the same thing and you'll be familiar with this one too of course matthew eleven twenty eight. he says this come to me all you who are weary and burdened and i will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now Jesus uses um, farming type of analogies regularly because, of course, in, in his time, the majority of the Israelite population lived rurally. You know, they weren't, there was, you know, the city of Jerusalem was a reasonable sized city for its day, but the vast majority of people lived more in a rural setting. Um, and, and so many of them were very, very familiar with, with agriculture and farming. So whether, whether or not um, it, it was uh, you know, planting grapes and producing wine or whether it was raising cattle and selling them or sheep or, or crops, you name it. They were familiar with all of those things. And so when Jesus uses this idea of, of, of a couple of bulls with a yoke over their back, everyone would have known what he's talking about but today i think we need it explained so we need to have a look at this image here of a couple of bulls with a, a, a big wooden structure over their back and that's uh, uh, can be attached to a, a trowel 
And even to this day, actually, a lot of um, farming in, in uh, poorer countries is often done this way. And a lot of fields can be ploughed up. Now, so when Jesus is saying these words, place my yoke upon you, uh, there could have even been something else in the background. Um, again, Bible commentator William Barclay says that, it, although it's not in the Bible, it was a tradition in church history that Jesus in those silent years, and when he was a carpenter, had the reputation as a carpenter to make the best yokes in Israel. They were so well-fitting on the bulls that they were highly sought after. Could be the truth. Could have been the case. And so there's a little bit more even as Jesus says that because many of them may have been aware of that, the crowds as they listen to him. But the bottom line of what Jesus is saying when he says, take my yoke upon you, the emphasis is you need to take the yoke I have provided. Because Jesus, being the creator... He has, he has uh, as it says in Ephesians, Paul uses the words where he talks about in, in Ephesians um, 2.10, you know, that he's created us uh, with, in mind with good works to do. He's created good works for us to do. In other words, he has in mind for us purpose. And certainly that would have been Jesus thinking as well. As he says, take my yoke upon you. Um, I have designed something to fit you perfectly. Now, you may have taken someone else's yoke upon you. Some, someone's tried to put a yoke upon you. It doesn't fit too well. Uh, or it could, be, it could be your work situation has a, has a yoke that doesn't fit too well over your life. Or it could be you have placed a yoke over your own life. What Jesus is saying here in saying, take my yoke upon you, he's saying, get rid of the other yokes. Whatever your other yokes you've placed upon yourself, you need to get rid of them. Rather, allow me to place my yoke upon you. But there's more to it. He goes on to say, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn from me or be guided by me. Now that's an interesting comment too. Again, to quote uh, William Barclay, he says that apparently you, you whack a couple of bulls together and they don't automatically um, operate. They, in fact, they fight to start with until the weaker bull submits to the stronger. And then the farmer can get some real work out of them. So when Jesus is saying, take my yoke upon you and learn from me or be guided by me it seems to me his illustration is that he's going to be yoked up right next to you but he's going to be the lead bull are we willing to allow him to be the lead bull <laughs> um, there's another interesting truth with this as well apparently the lead bull always pulled the greater weight and so Jesus, when he says, my yoke is easy, my burdens are light, really what he's saying here is that, you know, if you put my yoke upon you, I'm going to be right alongside you, I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to be pulling the greater load. That's why the burden becomes light. But are we willing to get rid of the yokes we've placed upon ourselves or others have placed on us and allow him to place his yoke upon us? I'm going to give you a chance actually to be, uh, receive some prayer about this. Um, the end of the message you can come forward and uh, if you if you would like to be prayed for that God would help you see what yokes he might be speaking to you now already you realize that you've got you've you've allowed a yoke over your life that's not really one that Jesus has placed there I'm going to give you a chance to be set free from that yoke and allow Jesus to place his yoke upon you through prayer at the end of this message going back to the passage it says in uh the vine passage, 15.7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Wow. 
That's a great verse on prayer, isn't it? Uh, John 15, 7. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, why is that the case? Well, friends, it's the case because what he's saying is if, um, if you remain in me and I in you, that is, if you abide in me and I in you, just like these branches have got to draw from the sap of the vine, and in that relational cooperation, so they bear fruit, he's saying, if you have learnt to be intimate with me, close to me, if, you've, if you become one with me, you'll find that the very words that you're praying are the very words I want you to pray. And when that starts to happen, when our words become Jesus' words, our prayers are just answered like that. But it's about that relationship. To read it again, Jesus said, If you remain in me, my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Encouraging verse. Finally, one more verse. 15.8, it says this. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now, Jesus' analogy here is that grape vines produce grapes. Clearly, it makes sense that a grapevine would produce grapes. What is a disciple of Jesus supposed to produce? Other disciples. A disciple of Jesus, the bottom line of, I would say, why we're here on planet Earth, is to produce other disciples. And so when he says... Showing yourselves, you're going to bear much fruit. Showing yourselves to be my disciples. What he's really saying is the acid test as to whether or not you're really a disciple is that you're making other disciples. And that's challenging to us. You know, it's a, it means that you know, his expectation is that we share the gospel and we lead someone to faith in Christ. We make a disciple. And that's the acid test of what it really is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, I know we can stretch the analogy a little bit further and say, hey, it could perhaps include things like the fruit of the Spirit. Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, um, where he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, humility, and self-control. Nine dimensions to the fruit of the Spirit. So there is some character stuff there. People sometimes refer to something as a fruitful ministry, meaning you know, it's, it's, it's helping extend God's kingdom. Lots of good things are happening. But really, even though I think it can be stretched to those analogies, the primary analogy that Jesus is giving is that a disciple of Jesus produces other disciples of Jesus, showing themselves to be the real deal. Now, having heard that challenge, I know it's not something we can do in our own strength, friends. It really isn't. Let me uh, finish with this final story about a friend of mine that illustrates this. Uh, His name's Leo Kalniscus. Now, Leo was a, a missionary to the Karen people. He was actually at Bible college when I was there, and he felt a calling to reach the Karen people in Vietnam with the gospel. Uh, they weren't very open at that time. They're actually, Karen people have become very open to Christ. In fact, there's a couple of great uh, Karen churches that I, I heard about uh, here in Victoria that planted fairly recently, are already both three or 400 strong. Wonderful how they've really opened up to Christ, the Karen people. Uh, they weren't so open in Leo's time when he was ministering in uh, Vietnam and uh, he had a big commitment actually because he's from the South Island of New Zealand now he's in, living in a tropical environment, big change um, and he was finding at times the ministry was fairly tough going uh, he took a furlough break and he used to come to my church from time to time and he'd preach and he'd tell us about you know, his experiences on the field he told us this illustration he said he was out having a swim 
and uh, it was just a nice relaxing beach he's a fairly well-built guy and a pretty good swimmer too but he gone out, perhaps got out a little too far and he got caught in a rip and he's been pulled out to sea and he's trying to get out of the out of the rip and he's you know uh, he's finding his energy is just waning and uh, he realized he's in trouble so he, he tried to signal to the, the, the guard, the, the lifeguard, uh, that he was in trouble. And, and, you know, the lifeguard got his, he got his attention and he's looking at his binoculars. And the lifeguard kind of points to him and just waves back to say, yep, he's seen him, you know. And uh, Leo feels very relieved. But then a couple of minutes later, he's thinking, the guy's still sitting up there. He's not doing anything. He's not moving. You know, he's still there. <laughs> and, uh, and so he signals more frantically. But the lifeguard just again, you know, there with his binoculars and just waves back, points again. Yep, I can see you, you know. <laughs> and another couple of minutes go by and he said, I, 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 was, I was starting to, you know, go under. I was starting to, you know, wa- get water in my, my lungs. And I thought, oh my goodness. And I, I had flashes of my life go through my mind. And I thought, oh, I've heard about this. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to flip and die, you know. It's, this is, uh, and I wouldn't mind it dying if it was for, you know, I'm trying to reach the Karen people. I get persecuted. And I die a martyr's death for Jesus. I could go with that, but I'm just out having a swim, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and then all of a sudden, he felt the lifeguard's uh, hand on his shoulder, and he attached to a rope. The lifeguard brought him back in. And as Leo's kind of laying down on the ground, coughing and spluttering, and he finally gets out the words, "Man, why, 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 why did you take so long? No, I could have drowned out there." And the lifeguard said this to him, "Well, when I was a younger man." As soon as someone was in trouble, I'd come out immediately and uh, you know, i get all sorts of responses. You know, sometimes a fellow would say, Hey, what are you doing, man? I don't need you. I'm not drowning. I'm all right. And other times uh, the person was, uh, you know, desperately in trouble. But because their strength wasn't spent, the arms and legs flapping around everywhere, they were so difficult to get back to shore. So, you know, nowadays I always wait. Well, Leo said at that point, he actually felt the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said this. You need to come to an end of your strength to really have a fruitful ministry. Come come to an end of your strength. And friends, um, that's a big part of what the essence of discipleship is about. You remember Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 12.10? For when I'm weak, then I'm most strong. Let's be a people that truly learn the essence of discipleship and have such a a close relationship with Jesus that we've become one with him, that we're drawing from his strength. And that's when we can truly see fruitfulness in our service to him. That's truly when he can give us what it takes to lead someone to Christ, to make a disciple. Shall we close in prayer? Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks, Lord, that uh, you've given us some tremendous analogies here in the Scriptures. Help us to be a people who draw from the nutrients that only you can provide, Lord. And Father, we, we think of that analogy also about the yoke. If we've got a yoke placed upon us that someone's placed on us or we've placed upon ourselves, that shouldn't be there. Help us to shake that off and rather allow you to place your yoke upon us, Lord. Help us to be a people that, it's true, that are truly embracing all that you want for us, but not carrying things that really you would like to remove. Lord, above all, 
Help us to be a people that know what it is to draw from your Spirit, helping us to be the fruitful disciples that you want. In the name of Jesus. Amen.